0: Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. As we get started here, um, Dr. Koo, uh, one thank you for coming on and tell us a little bit about your journey uh, into studying fashion and what got you particularly interested in uniforms.
1: Sure, um, boy. Well, my journey in terms of studying fashion has been pretty long, um, so I won't bore you. I guess with the it's the, a the little no, tedious right? to go through the whole you know the whole rabbit hole of how I ended up here. Um, so let's see, I was an art major as an undergraduate. And I really liked it, but I was more interested in I guess the study, not necessarily art history, but the study of like, why do people engage in these kinds of activities and in um, how things end up in museums. And um, so I decided to go to graduate school. I had spent a semester in Mali when I was in college, and I was really blown away by what I saw people wearing. And I thought, you know, I could spend the rest of my life doing this. So I went to graduate school, didn't really know what I was gonna do. Actually, I thought about um, becoming an immigration lawyer at one point. (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was not a given that I was gonna become a professor. Um, But when I started um, teaching classes, I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, I could see myself doing this, and I always really loved doing my research, so it, it kind of you know became a natural thing. And I was really fortunate to find a position that was a good fit for me. Um, so that was you know kind of my journey in terms of like becoming a professor. In terms of like fashion and why uniforms. So in graduate school, um, I was most interested in African dress and fashion. And my first book is about the history and politics of Somali dress. So there's a huge Somali community in Minnesota, which is where I did my PhD. I just happened to arrive in Minnesota about the time that Somali refugees were starting to arrive. And so I knew I was interested in African dress and fashion. And I proposed writing, you know, just like a term paper about that community. And my advisor was like, that's great. You do this for your dissertation. So I did. And that was really wonderful and interesting. And then I moved to Indiana and there is one Somali in Bloomington. And I know him and he's great, but that doesn't make a research study. <laughs> um, so I was like, OK, well, I, I'm going to have to change my research plans here because it was a challenge for me to travel at that point. So I started focusing on contemporary Islamic fashion, and that's also really great and interesting. Um, But several years ago, I became the director of our fashion collection at the university, which I never planned to do because like fashion collections usually don't collect African fashion. They don't collect Islamic fashion. And so there had never been anything I wanted to see in those kinds of collections. But when I suddenly became the director, I was like, okay, well, let me really, you know, understand what's here, what's not here, where can I make an impact? And I realized, like, even much closer to home, that the collection, like, at IU is a wonderful collection. It's one of the best university collections in North America, but it is missing some really key things. If you are a middle to upper class, heterosexual, cisgender, you know, well-educated white woman, you are very, very well represented in the collection. Pretty much anyone else, not well represented. So <laughs> right? that's a lot of people.
0: I, I'm shocked. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: right.
0: Yeah. You know, no. no, I mean, like, even as you're, you're talking about it, I mean, if you'd asked people to describe what they'd expect to see in a museum of fashion, they would describe those sorts of that sort of dress, right? That makes sense. Yeah,
1: it's like the fancy evening dress that someone, you know, prominent wore when they were in their 20s and 30s and they were really beautiful. Like, yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, anyway, so there was a lot missing. uh, (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, okay, someone has to do this kind of research. And um, so I wrote an article about the history of prison uniforms. That's not something that's in the collection. Um, Actually, I'm getting ready to teach a class about uniforms, and I just asked the curator today, like, hey, do we have any school uniforms? And she was like, I don't think so. We have a lot of Girl Scout uniforms. Are you interested in those? Like, it's not quite the same thing. Um, I'm not sure why there's so much more scouting uniforms than school uniforms. I was uniforms. about to...
0: That Yeah, that definitely sounds like an endowment or like a, a major donation or something. Like, uh... That that took a w- weird left turn. Okay, but please continue. This yeah. is fascinating.
1: Okay, well, so <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so, you know, along with all this research, I'm also like teaching classes. I teach primarily in our dress studies curriculum. So these are upper level classes for fashion design students. And actually they attract a lot of people from other majors too, which I really enjoy. And basically, they're about, you know, why do we dress the way we do? Like, how do, fashion sh- how do fashions change? Why do we change? Why do some things not change? Um, and kind of, there, there are so many different motivations behind why people choose to wear what they do. So, um, so I really love teaching in the area. And um, one class I developed a few years ago is on autobiographies of dress in the body. So I choose a few autobiographies from different perspectives. Like there's, you know, one about a transgender man. There's one about a plus size fashion model. Um, There's one written by a woman who converted to being Amish, which is fascinating. Um, And so as we were reading those, um, one of them is about a woman, Linda Torado. She's now a journalist. And she wrote a book uh, about, you know, what it's like to live in a working class lifestyle and like work in fast food jobs. And as we were reading that book, it dawned on me like, you know, one, this is also the kind of thing we don't have in the collection. And two, like, I'm actually really interested in this. Like, this is my my background. And why aren't these things represented? It really, like, I don't know why it took me 20 years to come to this realization, but it suddenly dawned on me, like, why I was never really that interested in American history and American fashion, because it didn't represent what I had grown up with. And so I have a real opportunity to add to that. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I just kind of... Uh and I think you you know, you you've hinted at it. Why do museums matter? Why does that representation matter in museums? If you don't mind answering
1: Well, that. yeah, I mean so I mean on a personal level, I've always loved museums. I think that, you know, seeing objects in person, like first of all, you know, not everyone is interested in reading. Like, I mean, I love to read. I'm a scholar, right? But I realize that that is not a form that's accessible to everyone. And that's perfectly fine. No judgment there. But seeing objects, I mean, even better if you can touch them, like there is just something very humanizing and visceral about that experience. Like, so for example, one of the sub collections that the Sage collection has, so this is the fashion collection at my university. Um, we have Glenn Close's costume collection, which is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. That's so cool. Yeah. And this thing is. I know. It's it's just amazing. And it's it's very unusual. And I mean, we don't have to talk about how we ended up with that, but it's a very unusual collection. And um, and the thing is, when people like, you know, get a chance to see that collection, they're like, can I touch it?
0: Of course. Like, yeah.
1: just the experience of like, touching this thing that this other, this very famous person wore is like, it's just, that's the thing they want so badly, this proximity. And um, You know, like historically in terms of construction, like it really is an amazing collection that way. But people are also really hungry for that, like one-to-one connection with another person. Hmm. So I think when you see things in collections or in museums, that's what you get from it. Like it really brings whoever wore or used that object. It really brings that person to life in a way that just reading about them doesn't.
0: It gives access to a whole different kind of knowledge. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's like uh, because of uh, where I grew up, I didn't have a lot of access to artworks. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I moved more into literature. That's kind of my background, philosophy of art and uh, philosophical hermeneutics. Uh, And I knew I should like, you know, if I wanted to educate myself, I need to understand more about art. Um, Mm -hmm. But I didn't really get it until I moved to Chicago and I went to the museum of art there and oh, <laughs> i yeah. was like yeah uh, like uh like uh, a sunday afternoon in the park i believe that's what's called by um shoot his name Surat. escapes me sarah yeah it's it's huge like i don't i'd seen it before and people described the technique and i was like okay that's cool and then like you see it in person and it's jaw dropping right and you can't comm- it, it doesn't matter how big your computer monitor is, how big a screen you use, it's no replacement for the thing itself, and that's what's it, it, I, that's the uh, corollary in my mind or the example that's it's so similar to this that like there's some things that you have to experience, and I think that's I think that is important um, yeah, so talk to me a little bit uh man the 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 section where you talked about I read a little uh a little bit from your paper on the on uh, prisons prison uniforms Mm. and Mm -hmm. how talk to us a little bit about how do media or how does media and uh, prison uniforms interact
1: Mm. well so interestingly enough okay so museums generally don't collect prison uniforms and i can i can speculate about a lot of reasons why um partly because like people just don't really want like they don't want to honor or celebrate or remember those kinds of people like it's just, you know, again, people have a kind of revulsion toward the whole, like prisons and people who wear prison uniforms, Um, which in many ways is very unfortunate, because if anyone needs to be rehumanized, it's people who are in prison. Um But uh, so there's not a lot of prison uniforms out there in the world. The only prison uniform that the Sage collection has. So this, again, is my fashion collection at Indiana University, um, is a prison uniform that is in Glenn Close's costume collection. So, so she wore it for a film called Cookies Fortune, which was made like in the 80s. It's very silly. She plays this like woman who is falsely accused of murdering someone. It's this like family drama kind of thing. And so it's, it was filmed in Mississippi. At a county jail, and I think that the jail either like sold or gave her this uniform because it is a legit prison uniform. So, like, it was made by a known uh, prison uniform supplier, which is called Bob Barker, and uh, and that's the only one. <laughs> so it dawned on me, like, okay, well, you know, what about other films? Like, there's lots of you know films and television shows that portray prisons where do they get their uniforms from? Well, you know, there's, when you start looking around, actually, there's just, we're just saturated with media about prisons. And the uniforms are actually very accurate in those things, because you need authenticity, like for the viewer to buy, oh, this is about prison, the uniforms should be reasonably accurate. And because we have such an incredible density of prisons and, you know, population of prisoners in this country, like a lot of people have experience with prisons. So you can't just make something pretend and expect people are going to buy it like it needs to be accurate. And so that's actually a really great way of studying prison uniforms, because they are often very accurate portrayals.
0: Absolutely. I you know, and it's you you've even touched on it a little bit here. Um, I don't know if you had mentioned it in uh, it was in like your bio or anything, but I definitely was expecting some references to Foucault when you when you talked about prison uniforms. I'm like, well, that's got to <laughs> be where this goes, right? But the um, the importance of uniforms as symbols, and I'd love to talk about other uniforms as well, but especially for prisons. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, uh, especially starting with what was fascinating to me. And I never thought about this. It's why khakis became um, and why they became uh, the uh, gang wear for uh, Mexican street gangs. That was that was fascinating to me. So if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, that story, but even just like um, prison uniforms as symbols and what that what are they symbols of and how are they appropriated outside of prison, that would be, uh, that's really fascinating to me.
1: Sure. Okay. So, so, you know, describing my article here in a nutshell, so, um, prison uniforms, the U S is actually kind of unique in having identifiable prison uniforms. So when prison uniforms first became a thing in the mid 1800s, um, I mean, it started as, okay. You know, punishment for criminals has always been like really violent. And maybe let's dial down the violence and punish them in a different way. So we'll put them in these prisons and we'll remove them from society. And it's a very like shameful experience. And we'll have them wear these clothes that are really shameful. So like the first British prison uniform had a symbol on the uniforms. that kind of looks like a W. And it basically meant that that person was the property of the state, which Mm -hmm. is horrifying. I mean, I wouldn't want to be marked that way. Um, But the thing is that In Europe, hopefully most
0: people would agree with you. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, horrible, horrible. So in Europe, most countries have moved toward having prisoners wear their own street clothing. Hmm. And of course, you know, there are challenges with that as well. But the idea is, okay, just being in prison is already punishment enough. We don't have to further punish people by shaming them and like taking away their freedom of expression. Like, there's no reason they can't wear their own clothes. In the US, however, we have really gone in the other direction, which is not only have we kept prison uniforms, but there have been many instances where prisons have tried to make them as shameful and humiliating as possible. So, for example, show, you know, Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Maricopa County, Arizona uh, was infamous for intentionally making his male prisoners wear pink boxer shorts as part of their uniform because he saw pink as a feminine color, and you know, haha! How funny and horrible is it to force the male prisoners to wear women's underwear? That's the kind of thing that happens in the U.S.
0: Definite problems with that. Uh, that's problematic on so many levels. Yes, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. Uh, wow. Um, I if that was in your article, I did not get to that part of it. But. Uh, no problem. What's interesting about that, you know, um, is then how, in response, what's intended to be a shameful thing, instead, mm-hmm. you you have people because they're experiencing it together, band together, and it becomes a source of pride, right?
1: right? Right. So yeah, yeah. And I you had mentioned the thing about how did chinos become a you know a fashion. So actually, I'm realizing now, look, like, working a bit on work uniforms, also that there was kind of a confluence of things happening. So yeah, so California, the state of California in the like 70s and early 80s was mostly using denim and chambray for prison uniforms. And um, the state of California has a prison industry system where prisoners actually make the uniforms that other prisoners wear. Um, However, Every county can make some of its own decisions about what prison uniforms should look like. So in Los Angeles County prisons, there was a time in the 90s where they switched to using khaki instead of denim. And so, yeah, the thing is, okay, now you think, okay, prisoner gets released. Of course, they're going to switch into their, you know, their own personal clothing. But a lot of people, when they get out of prison, don't have other clothing. There's not necessarily someone there to pick them up. I mean, it really depends on their personal situation. And so what happened in the nineties is you have, you know, this was a real spike in the prison population in the US. Um, and it, you know, we know from other data about prisons that it, you know, minorities are particularly targeted and put in prison in disproportionate numbers. So you had lots of, um, black and Latino, uh, Inmates in Los Angeles County, and so people would come out of prison. These are also some of the people who are least likely to have support on the outside, and so they're released wearing their prison uniform, and that's all they have. And so it became this badge of honor, like, haha, you know, look at me still wearing my prison uniform. Now I'm on the outside, but I'm not, you know, like I'm going to spin it into something positive. Um, And so it actually took off as this like street fashion, Um, but the the work. Uniform thing, kind of like I said, there was a weird confluence. That was also the time when companies were starting to experiment with casual Fridays, and khaki chinos also became the casual Friday look. <laughs> so it's really weird that, that like, that's prison a weir- and work kind of. Uh huh.
0: And that I mean, and that, uh, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm assuming those are two very different demographics, though.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, this is a good thing. I'm one learning a lot, but two, like it's leaving me with so many questions. <laughs> like how I, I understand, like correlation is not causation, but like, man, that's a strange, right. that's a strange coincidence. Right. Um, yeah. uh, so it, it's interesting to see, um, you, you mentioned this with your, with the service uniform side of things, but you, you wrote your article about masks and how people then took yeah. kind of a, a response, like, and understand we were just talking about prison uniforms. And then when you talked about masks, it mm-hmm. became very apparent that people responded to them as a similar kind of symbol as a, as a restraining thing. Right. And so, right. uh, can you talk uh, a little bit about uh, what you discovered in your research about how masks were um, used in uh, both food service, but also just generally, um, and what was the symbolism behind that that you found?
1: Sure. So, um, so everyone knows, you know, there was, there still is, honestly, tremendous controversy about wearing masks, and this article that I wrote was. Specifically, in the context of food service workers. So, food service—that's not the kind of job you can do from home. Like, you—you you have to interact with the public. There's no way around that. So, of course, especially before there were vaccines, a lot of those workers wanted to wear masks. They were really desperate to protect themselves. Very understandably. The thing is that so so I'm working on a book right now about um, the history of work uniforms in the U.S. And I do have a chapter that's about corporations, and it touches on food service uniforms at several points. But the thing that you have to understand is that different kinds of workplaces have internal logics about uniforms and dress codes. So even though we think of masks as a medical device, when workers started to ask to wear masks, the people who decide on uniforms and dress codes were like, well, that's an item of dress. So whether you get to wear that or not is our decision. And decisions were all over the map. So some companies immediately embraced them and said, "You know, yes, of course you can wear whatever you need to, to protect yourself. We just want you to keep working. Some companies took the opposite direction and were like, no, you can't wear masks under any circumstances. It is gonna freak out our customers. Because think about like before this pandemic, the associations that we had with masks,
0: part
1: of it was like, You know, okay, it's a medical thing, but only for people who are really, really sick, like, you know, chemotherapy patients. Well, I don't want to wear a mask because I don't want to look like I have some serious health problem. Um, We also associated masks with things like bank robbers, extremists, political protesters, gangsters, uh, you know, cowboys. Like, we had a lot of pretty bad association with masks. And... It had been a long time since people wore masks for like, you know, widespread for any, you know, health reason, like the previous pandemic had been the Spanish flu. So so no one remembered wearing masks and we just had all these really horrible associations with them. So some companies were like, no, we're not going to allow our workers to wear masks. Like we don't, we don't want to get involved in all those terrible associations. That's not part of our brand identity. Um, and then of course there were, you know, Lots of companies who fell somewhere in the middle there. Um, As companies were able, so when the pandemic first started, one of the challenges too was that it was really hard to get masks and PPE in general. So at first, the push was like, okay, well, you know, healthcare workers really need these things. We can't worry too much about everybody else. Like healthcare workers have to be the 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 primary focus. Um, But then, as like you know, supplies started to increase, and especially as like companies could get branded masks. So it's like, okay, well, I work at Kroger, and now my employer is giving me, you know, these two masks that are like the same color as my uniform polo t-shirt, and it has the Kroger logo on it, then it's okay. (laughs) So there were all kinds of calculations that went into this. Like, you know, I think for a lot of people who don't make decisions about uniforms and dress code, it seemed like a simple thing, like either, of course you would, or of course you wouldn't. But actually, it was a much more complicated decision for a lot of people.
0: What are some of the internal logics that govern uniforms in general in the workplace?
1: Mm. Well, okay, so well, certainly one of the big ones is the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Um, which so the pandemic really put that law to the test because so what OSHA says basically is that workers should not be expected to compromise their health and safety to keep their job. Like there should be a reasonable expectation that your employer is looking out for you. So um, that was one of the reasons that people cited for wearing masks like, you know, you know, you're obligated to do this. Like, this is a law. But OSHA didn't issue any guidance until June 2020. They just they were just, they just waited it out.
0: Well, and it, it, but you mentioned this in uh, and this is just an example of just how complicated the whole thing was. Uh, and I saw this is that it, it was like the the mandates would change within two weeks. Yes. And so that yeah. I mean, that's for people who have to implement things like that's really <laughs> intense to go back and forth. Like, um, wh- you know, wherever people feel about masks in general, like it's just a lo- there is a logistical problem there. Um, uh, I remember when it ended in Chicago, uh, we were going to go visit friends mm-hmm. and then we had to figure out like we, we were doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, like uh, they made the decision. We started planning about two weeks beforehand. And we, and the last week they were like, Oh, we're ending it. And so we'd made all these plans on how to accommodate what was happening. And then like, all of a sudden it was like a three or four day notice. And they're like, we just changed everything. Like it went from, you had to have a mask. You had to have the vaccine to everything's gone. And so it was so anyways, it, it's, it, it's, it, there, there was a logistical part to this. I, so I, that was, that was fascinating to me, but, um, sorry, I I got going there that, 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 I didn't really experience that working, working from home. I, to be honest, I just kind of like during the lockdown and all of that, I just like put my head in the sand. Um, uh, I didn't fair. have to deal with it. Yeah. I was just like, I mean, I'm not going to go out. Right. Like, um, right. and so it was really interesting to me to see how it, how much it in, like you just had restaurant owners who had like, who are strictly enforcing things. And then literally the next day there was no, like, There's no like uh, gray area. It was just like black and white, like from full to nothing, and so that was the logistical side of it was something that was fascinating to me and that came out in your article. But um, but I'm digressing. The uh, (laughs) so when you talk about those internal logics, uh, you have uh, obviously OSHA, and they're waiting to kind of see how things pan out, and then you have people who actually have to make decisions: the managers, the internal bureaucracy, kind of administration higher up. Um, What are some of the internal logics they, you know, behind, you know, masks, but also uniforms in general, like you talked about like, oh, it's okay now that you have the logo, right? Like why, what are the, what is the value to a company that they create these uniforms and they enforce that?
1: Right. Well, so so one of the examples I gave in my article of a company that did like had to respond very quickly to changing, uh, you know, demands about masks was Walmart. So you think like, okay, well, why would Walmart have supply issues? Like, I mean, they think about all the stuff that's just sitting around in Walmart stores around the country, like surely, if anybody had enough PPE, it was Walmart, Um, but they were struggling just like everybody else. And, um, but thinking about their internal logic. So Walmart, um, in terms of the uniform itself, their uniform is pretty minimal, although it has um, been controversial at certain points because, um, workers are so poorly paid. Um, so, like 2013, Walmart changed its dress code. They decided they wanted everyone to wear either a navy or white polo shirt. And um, you could wear black pants, or I think you could wear khaki pants. So, there was like, you know, very limited selection, but um, pretty simple dress code. But the workers said, you know, look, I don't have the money to just go buy two or three new shirts. And Walmart wasn't providing any money for the uniforms. So, you know the workers really like hundreds and hundreds of workers protested that change um but walmart in terms of thinking like why do they have any kind of uniform or, uniform or dress code at all um it's largely part of their branding scheme so so walmart has a really tight branding scheme if you go on their website they actually have defined walmart blue as a specific pantone color
0: oh wow <laughs> and, okay and
1: um of course yeah, yeah yeah it's it's very specific Um, so to them, it's like, okay, well, everything else is designed. Like, you know, we use these colors on the signs and our communication and our advertisements and our packaging. So of course, we're going to use the same colors on the bodies of our workers. And that is going to help customers in the store to recognize, oh, this is a Walmart employee and this is who I need to ask for help. Um, so you can understand like, you know, that internal logic, it's, it's a little gross. I mean, it reminded me honestly of, um, So one of the early chapters in my book is about uh, household employees and like upper class households. So it's about maids, doormen, and porters. And the kind of logic that Walmart has really pretty similar to what people had with their maids and domestic servants, which is this person's preferences don't matter. They need to match my decor.
0: Right. Right. And
1: so that's the kind of, yeah, that's the Walmart mindset.
0: (laughs) Uh, so, uh, forgive me and I should know this, but what does PPE mean?
1: Oh, uh, personal protective equipment.
0: Got it. So okay.
1: frequently, I mean, for most people that just mean ma- means masks, but especially in healthcare, there's a lot more PPE besides just the masks.
0: Right. Uh, or in construction, you're going to have, right. Like the helmets, that kind of thing. That makes sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about and maybe, uh, you know, maybe this is too much of a leading question, but can you talk at you talk at length about shame with uh, in regards to uniforms? Um, even sure. that kind of comes out in some of the discussions around masks, the way that people uh, who are frustrated about wearing masks um, that they've talked about shame. But uh, can you talk about that connection, the at least in an American culture, between shame and uniforms
1: sure i mean shame definitely is not all uniforms are shameful like there are some some kinds of uniforms where people really wear them with a great sense of pride and a genuine sense of pride like i do not want to imply that wearing a uniform is always shameful and that the people who wear them feel ashamed because that's not the case right
0: (laughs) yeah 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 so okay so dumb question but uh, i i think you have a good answer so that's okay (laughs)
1: So, so, but the thing is that shame is part of the experience for some kinds of uniforms. I mean, Mm. you see that really strong with prison uniforms, but that is certainly not the only kind of uniform that's shameful. And I think this is why scholars in general have not wanted to write about work uniforms. There's very little scholarship on this topic because it's really gross. Like, I don't want to wear a corporate uniform. I, it's basically... You know, again, keeping in mind that some people do experience them positively. A lot of uniforms are about keeping you in your place. You do this thing for us. You're just a cog in the machine. Everyone needs to look exactly the same. You're all, you know, no one's special. Everyone's replaceable. You're part of the team. You're part of the, it's like being in a military unit. Um, Except government workers actually have more say in their uniforms than a lot of other employees. Um and so I think a lot of people who, you know, a lot of people have experience wearing uniforms, like, I, I wore a uniform. Uh, my first one was, I had a job. this is when I was in college. I um, took a summer job at an amusement park, because I, it was one that I'd been to as a kid, and I thought, you know, oh, this is going to be really fun for a summer job. Like I love <laughs> riding the rides. you know, everyone's happy, it'll be really fun. And actually, the guests in the park were really fine. I did not mind interacting with them at all. But there were some other aspects of the job that were really horrible. Um, for one thing, the pay was extremely low. Uh, and also, a lot of the people who were managers just were not very good managers. I, I realized like, the kind of people who took those jobs were like people whose lives probably weren't going very well. And so they just they were really quite horrible to work with. But anyway... Um, The thing is that so this was this was one of the early uniforms that I wore. And it just let you know, I experienced what it means to be like this kind of, you know, nameless faceless cog in the machine, like, it, it can be empowering to work together as a team and feel like you're really, you know, really contributing to society really doing something good. But there are lots of jobs that are really not contributing that much to society. You're not doing good. You're not really proud of what you're doing. And then being forced to wear a uniform on top of it where you have very little say about your personal appearance is just really dehumanizing.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think, uh, what when you talk about teams, right, like the idea of being part of something, the question is, how much pride do you take in that thing? And that's what yes. determines the uniform, right? Like, so for military, I mean, uh, I do know there are veterans who are not proud of their service, but generally speaking, sure. like if you, to, if you go to a veteran, like they're very proud of their uniform, like when that, when yeah. that shows up. Um, uh, and so, but that's, in every case, the question of the uniform is dependent on how they feel about being part of that team. Um, and I think the idea of identification symbolism matters quite a bit. Um, when uh what did you find especially illuminating from uh Foucault as you were working through this as you were you're talking about like mechanisms of control
1: um so he was really writing about that switch from you know punishment of prisoners being a like violent public thing to being a private, shameful, intense experience um And in particular, like the, the psychological torment of that. I mean, of course, like it's not pleasant to be flogged in public either. Like, I'm not saying that we should bring back that kind of punishment. Right. Um, but like, you know,
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, you you probably should. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do appreciate that you, you, uh, that you, uh, just made that clear, but hopefully that would be clear without you making it clear that you're not advocating for a return to flogging.
1: Public oh, like flogging. <laughs> Thank, you. Right?
0: Thank you for making that explicit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh.
1: Well, so basically what Foucault was saying about prisoners is that it um it's a hidden private experience. Like the prisoner is suffering. Internally, and he has very little control. You know, well, they can be women too, but um, but prisoners have very little control over their experience. It's it's very boring and tedious, and um everything they do is controlled. Um, it just is a very it's a very shaming experience. I mean, if you know, again, flogging is shameful too, but prison like it has this <laughs> psychological dimension to it, right?
0: Right. <laughs> That's right. what
1: Foucault was getting at.
0: Yeah. Uh And that actually, so, uh, and I want to make sure I'm referencing this correctly. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of the black and white stripes? Because you made reference to it and I had never known that's what, I mean, I I, I grew up with that in cartoons. Like I I remember the first time I saw an orange jumpsuit in prison and I was like, that looks wrong. But that's because I was a kid and I was like, I, you know, I'd watch Tom and Jerry and I was like, it's supposed to be black and white stripes, right? Um, right. But then you, you you mentioned the the history behind why they uh, they had prisoners wear that, and that was shocking to me. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so there's a really interesting book uh, written by a French scholar about stripes in Western culture, and basically stripes are like the mark of being a bad person. So stripes are associated with jesters, prostitutes criminals, like, you know, all the unsavory people. So yeah, the w- the first US prison uniforms were, you know, when when they we started having uniforms, because, you know, backing up, like before there were uniforms, prisoners actually were wearing their own clothes, just like they are now in Europe. Um, I found a really interesting little historical document. Um, it was from like the mid 1800s, where um, someone in the like a military official was complaining about how Some soldiers had been in prison, and when they were released, they were still wearing their their military uniform, because that was the only clothing they had. But the experience of prison had been very rough. So by the time they came out, their uniform was not in good condition. And then they're like out there wearing this really awful military uniform, and they were like, this does not reflect well in the military. We really need to do something about this. So anyway, so... (laughs) So, you know, like mid 1800s prisons around the country started having some kind of uniform instead of your street clothing. And yeah, stripes were the first thing that they decided prisoners should wear because that was that was the most shameful thing people could think of to have prisoners wear.
0: And I, I want to make sure I get this right. It was called the Devil's Clothing. Wait, yeah, so so
1: he, he refers to it as the devil's yeah, the devil's stripes. Yeah.
0: Is is that come from anywhere in particular that the devil's associated with stripes?
1: Boy, in ter- like, that's a longer history that goes beyond me. I mean, okay. as far as like, how did that association originate? I I'm not 100% sure.
0: <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, that was like, because uh, I think you mentioned, you know, and this is reflecting the times, right, that it like, um, the list was prisoners and criminals and Jews and like and it's like and this is the devil's clothing and it's yeah and and jesters and prostitutes and you just look at it and um uh i yeah it definitely sounds like something that uh i would love to hear more about at some point because i like i feel like there's something in like medieval like uh mystery plays or something where that comes out i like you know what i mean so but obviously that that's a that's a that's another guest probably. So I'll keep that in mind. Um, yes.
1: I can't think uh, of the top of my head. I want to say his last his past or no, but yeah, well, I don't know. You could look him right. up.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that'll be some really interesting Google searching devils, clothing stripes, you know?
1: <laughs> um, yes. Uh, You'll find his book when you Google that.
0: Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um what are, um, are there any benefits to, I mean, I think you've mentioned some of them, but can you talk about the benefits of uniforms and uh, what would be the benefits of removing uniforms? Where, where would you, uh, it, is there anything prescriptive? You could say it's like, it seems pretty obvious we should get rid of uniforms here.
1: Mm. Well, so in terms of the, the benefits of them, um, so I think government uniforms, people have written extensively because lots of different government branches require uniforms. So of course the military does, but there's also like, you know, postal workers and the police and meter maids. I mean, those are the ones that I've written about Um, park, park rangers. There's lots of different government employees that wear uniforms. And so there's a lot of literature about it and they describe so that, Actually when you look in the um the manual so there's an extensive manual for postal workers about you know all the functions of their job and what do you have to wear and how do you acquire it and how much allowance do you get to purchase those things like there's a lot of very specific regulations and there's a short section in the manual which describes like why do we wear uniforms and um one reason is for professionalism and interestingly enough they're like well doctors and nurses wear uniforms so the postal workers should too which is a really interesting argument. Um, But then I think the thing that's most important is they make an argument that it's about esprit de corps. So this is also a phrase that um, the military uses. And basically, it's like, for like the good of morale for the entire group, like you should wear this to really, like, you should be proud to let people know that you work for this institution. It's just good for like the health of us as a group. Um, so I think in, in the best cases where people really do feel proud to wear the uniforms, that's the kind of tone that's established. Like, you know, there's a good spirit that's achieved by having everyone dress the same and perform as a team.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, even when you talk about professionalism, um, I actually, <laughs> uh, I, I was part of several different discussions. Uh, I used to work in a student life department in the college, we were talking about what people could and couldn't wear, and uh oh, yeah. the the one of the things that often came up is the narrower you make it, the easier it is mm-hmm. to enforce, and so that is a big part, like they mentioned you know doctors and nurses, but that that idea of like it's easier to enforce, and if if it's really important that people look a certain way that they maintain a certain level mm-hmm. of like not slovenliness if i if I probably said that word wrong but um <laughs> but the uh that that kind of disarray that, you know, you're like, well, I don't want a, a police officer who looks like he doesn't know what he's doing, right? Like that's, <laughs> that you know, that's like professionalism. And it's easier to mm-hmm. maintain that and enforce that if there's uniforms, which is often the same kind of arguments you see. Like you see these similar arguments for school uniforms, right? Like um, yes. we did not have, it was a college. We did not have school uniforms. And, you know, but it, it was int- like these arguments came up and they, I'm like, I'm not gonna lie. I'm having some flashbacks, um, but <laughs> the uh, um, and one thing. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, it that it was interesting. They mentioned doctors and nurses. It seems to me that there's also just a as we talk about how easy it is to keep things standardized. There's a there's a health component for doctors and nurses. Is that true? Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you dig in, so this is another section of my book where I dug into the history of healthcare workers' uniforms. So their uniforms have actually changed quite a bit over the last 150 years. Um, nurses were actually some of the first, they, they started wearing uniforms even before doctors did. And for them in the beginning, it was really a, a matter of professionalism. So starting in the first nursing schools, um, like Bellevue Hospital in New York was one of the first nursing schools in the country. And um, they decided to institute a uniform. Um, and when people graduated, that was the first time that people got a specific cap to wear as a nurse. If you've ever heard about like capping ceremonies for nurses,
0: I've not. And it familiar. became this marker of okay.
1: prestige. Oh, okay. So, so nurses. So, so you graduate, you get the specific cap that shows that you have graduated from a nursing program. You're a qualified nurse. Like that's a really special thing. It shows your hmm. qualifications. You're a professional. You know, you're ready to do a particular kind of job. And you can see. I mean, especially for women at that time, like. It would have been so important to and and also there weren't a lot of opportunities for women at that time to really, you know, get an education and be a working professional like that was one of the few outlets. So it must have been just extremely important for those women to have that that badge of their professionalism. Um, It took longer to convince doctors. Um, Because doctors in the late 1800s were still wearing their own street clothes, even even performing surgeries like there was no, you know, surgical attire at that point. They just like walk in in their suit and start hacking at people. (laughs) You can just imagine like how unsanitary that was.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yes. Like yeah, Unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Sometimes they would wear, you know, if they if they were concerned about cleanliness, they might wear like a butcher's apron to keep the blood off their suit, but that was about it. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> turn of the century, people started realizing like, hey, actually it'd be really good if we sterilize our clothing because we're killing our patients by infecting them with things.
0: You so, know, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I was not, you, you, you've used this word a couple of times. I was not expecting this uh, discussion to be so gross at so many crucial points. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did doctors uniform start out? Butcher aprons. Like, I can see yep. why that happened, but I did not really want that mental image. But thank you.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where they're like surgeons were called bone saws, right?
0: Right, right. No, it, it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, anyways, sorry. Yes. So they're the Louis listening to Louis uh Pasteur, and they're like, oh, we're killing our patients, right? We're we're just passing germs from one person to the next. And so that's,
1: yeah. So then, so then doctors started wearing uniforms. The thing is, they're not, so doctors, I mean, that's a really prestigious occupation. I found some really, a really interesting sociological study from the like 1940s, where they were surveying um, people in different countries about like, what occupations are the most prestigious to you? And at the time in the US, it was like, I think Supreme Court justice was number one. And then number two was like, you know, president of the United States. And then like number three was surgeon. Like they were way up there. Yeah. Um, So it was a very prestigious occupation. And, you know, doctors had their own ways of displaying professionalism. Like they didn't really want to wear a uniform, Um, but they were convinced because of the need for sterilization. So they started wearing white. And then, you know, especially again with medical students, like, Graduating from medical school and getting your first white jacket that said you're a legitimate doctor, like, that became so prestigious and exciting in itself that it, like, got people over the hump of, like, okay, uniforms are all right. It's, you know, we can wear this as part of our professional work. So, so it's a rare instance where, you know, middle and upper class people wear uniforms. Anyway, so, um, so they started wearing all white because that also really helped with sanitation. That's also, so like by the 1920s, you were starting to get doctors wearing what they call at the time scrub suits. Uh, And it referred to the process of, you know, scrubbing into surgery. Like you're going to clean your body and then you're also going to put on this white garment that's only worn in operating rooms. It's very simple. Um, So like, you know, you don't have to worry too much about like, oh, this one fits me, but that one doesn't. Like it's not tailored. Um, It's just a very, very simple outfit. Yeah. Then by like the 1970s, um, people started to realize like, you know, hey, these these scrubs are actually really comfortable. They're really cost effective. And why doesn't everybody start wearing them? Um, Nurses also. So through this time period, um, early 1900s, their um, their uniforms became like progressively more fashionable. So nurses were nurse uniforms in the early 1900s, like really reflected the fashions of the time. And so they changed huh. a lot. Also, nurses usually were responsible for buying their own uniforms, which meant that they didn't necessarily like as long as they wore you know, a white dress, it, they had some choice over the style. Oh, OK. It wasn't just like the hospital was issuing. I mean, there were some hospitals that did, but in a lot of cases, nurses bought their own uniforms. Um, so anyway, um, so by the 70s um hospitals were starting to switch to having everyone wear scrubs and now it's really like that is by far the most dominant kind of uniform that's used in the healthcare industry um i mean you do see some doctors and even nurses still wearing the white medical coat um but like scrubs are very widely used and not just in hospitals also like your veterinarian probably wears scrubs and your dentist and your pharmacist and the receptionist at your doctor's office like when you start looking around and seeing who wears scrubs, actually, a lot of people wear scrubs today. Huh.
0: That's really fascinating. Uh, and a lot of that is just the ease of use and uh, the comfort of it. Is that that seems to be. the? Is there, are there yeah, other other I mean, reasons or go
1: ahead? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. Like the in terms of the sizing, like they don't have a very customized fit. There's only a few sizes. So it's really easy to find something that's going to fit you. If it's like a hospital situation where the hospital is actually gathering the scrubs and laundering them, you don't have to worry too much about what belongs to who. Like, it's pretty interchangeable. Um, They're unisex. So men and women, I mean, people, you know, non-binary people can all wear the same outfit. It's exactly the same cut. Um, Also, a lot of medical professionals, even today, are responsible for buying their own uniforms. And now there are just dozens of companies out there making uniforms of all different, you know, scrub uniforms. So if you want to have, I mean, of course, lots of medical professionals still wear solid colors, either because they're required to or just because it looks very, you know, professional. But especially like people who work around kids or the dentist, like times when people are like really, really scared about what they're getting into. Those are the people who you'll see wearing like cartoon characters on their scrubs because they're trying to like ease that discomfort. So scrubs come in a wide variety now, but the basic shape is like
0: the same, Yeah, such
1: a, you know, practical unisex outfit. Yeah.
0: I'm glad you said that about the cartoon characters. Cause in my head, all I could think of were solid color, which of course are easier to clean, uh, you know, important yeah. for cleanliness noticing when something's dirty right like cartoon characters like something could hide in that design more um that but that true. that's good to yeah that's that's uh that's good to like fix in my head the um I, I want to be respectful of your time so kind of as we as we wrap up here uh you know where where do you think uniforms are a problem in our society do you do you have any Prescriptive ideas about uh, where we should get rid of uniforms, or maybe limit them, or uh, what what are what are ways that we could do better society in regards to uniforms, or maybe add uniforms. You know, maybe you're just like everyone should wear a uniform, and then that would just solve all problems. But um,
1: <laughs> I do not think it would solve all the
0: problems. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wanted to give you the option. Maybe you want to add more uniforms, uh, but I, I I could tell as you're talking about some of these that. You're like, the, these uniforms seem to be an issue. So uh, can you, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, okay. So, so a couple of thoughts about that. One is um, a lot of different kinds of, I mean, since I have I've really been concentrating on work uniforms, a lot of different workplaces and schools um, have gone back and forth about, you know, how much do we need or want to control people's appearance? Like, it is a kind of control. And maybe sometimes that's fine. Um, like, one big argument for school uniforms is that it limits display of social status. Like, maybe we don't want K-12 students spending $500 for a pair of jeans. Like, maybe that's a problem. I can understand that argument.
0: <laughs> right, um,
1: right. It doesn't the problem because there are other ways to display status, your car, your hairstyle, your shoes. like you know, people people find ways. Um, but I can see the argument. like it's not like uniforms are just blanket bad. i I do think that people can become like overly attached to controlling other people through uniforms, and it becomes this really abusive, narcissistic kind of practice. Um, so it can be a problem. um, but uh, I don't pink, think pink underwear
0: just... as an example.
1: Yeah. Right, that's Right, a really That, good that ex- one's well, like a,
0: that's a big red flag. Like, yeah. Anyways, but.
1: Yeah. That's a huge red flag. Um, the, the one thing I'll say in terms of like where I think maybe there should be some restriction. So, and this is uh, actually part of an article that I'm getting to write about uh, preparing to write about dresses, symbolic aggression is that, so we have, there is a federal law in this country saying that you can't impersonate government workers So if you think about, like, the police, for example, you can't dress up like a police officer when you're not one. Which makes sense because, you know, police have authority, for example, to use deadly force. You shouldn't. If you're not a police officer, maybe you shouldn't have that. (laughs) Right. Um, Although there are cases where people do play around with police uniforms, like, you know, bachelorette parties, cosplay. Halloween costumes, like there are some kind of sanctioned times where we play even with uniforms, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. I'm I, not saying
1: I, that those are bad.
0: Yes. I saw yeah, some of your examples of the prison uniforms. I was like, ah, yes, of course, that would exist on Amazon. But yeah, anyways, please continue. Oh, yeah.
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so so there is this law about, you know, not impersonating public workers, Um I mean, the police come to mind as a particularly you know, important example there. But I think here's the one that really, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on now is um, use of military uniforms. Hmm. So military uniforms, I mean, aside from like, you know, what they do from the individuals who participate in the military and like, because they're used for, you know, showing your qualifications and they help with the chain of command, like, you know, knowing who's who um they i think they really do build a spirit of teamwork amongst people like i think there are very you know some positive reasons that the military uses uniforms I'm and no way of saying that that's a bad thing the challenge is when you have people who are not in the military wearing military uniforms now where it really started is after the war in vietnam some people started wearing military uniforms as a kind of protest, or irony. So there are some subcultures where people wear military uniforms, not because they, in fact, they do not support the military, but it's kind of, it's like poking fun at it, like, haha, you know, this doesn't mean anything. I can wear it too. And then you also see fashions like camouflage, bomber jackets, aviator sunglasses. I mean, when you start looking around, there are actually a lot of fashions that are inspired by military equipment and uniforms. Um, But what's really a problem right now is extremist groups. I'm thinking, I mean, you know, I'm getting ready to watch the the January 6th hearings again today. And you get people going to protests wearing military uniforms. And they're not in the military. And they're, as far as I can see, using it for two purposes. One purpose is you do see people wearing things like flak helmets and bulletproof vests literally for the reasons that the military would which is for physical protection but more importantly than that you also see a lot of people right now wearing military uniforms to be intimidating and Mm. to make people feel scared that they are going to be the recipients of violence if they don't go along Mm. and i think that is where uniforms become a very serious problem i really i mean yeah i don't think it's healthy the degree to which Militarization has really taken hold outside of the military in the U.S.
0: Well, I'm I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. That's that's I, it's scary, like, and it's intended to be scary, right? And that's that's your whole exactly. point. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as we wrap up, as we conclude here, um, mm-hmm. what what's one what's the last final thought you'd like to leave to our listeners about fashion about uniforms?
1: Mm. I guess the last thought is, so uniforms are so ubiquitous in American society. When you start looking around for uniforms, they are everywhere. But a lot of times we don't even notice them. They're just, it's like hidden in plain sight. They're everywhere. But the idea is that you shouldn't have to think about it. Like, oh, there's the grocery store clerk. There's the, you know, cashier at Walmart. There's the postal worker delivering my mail. Like, the shorthand of uniforms is that you shouldn't have to think too hard about it, but it also means that we don't think too hard about it. (laughs) So in my book, I'm trying to, to think more hard about it.
0: Right, right. So just recognizing not all the time, but maybe for people who are listening to this and then going out about their day to think about the mechanisms embedded in the clothing around them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, again, you know, I love ways to really humanize other people. But, you know, look at people hmm. around you, see what they're wearing and think about, oh, why are they wearing that? Would would I like to wear that? It, you know, is is it a good thing that they're wearing that? Like, I mean, <laughs> just you know, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. a way to be curious. I mean, I love studying dress and fashion. So this is my thing. But I think it's it's something that, you know, people can really be curious about and it can really open your eyes to the experiences other people are having around you
0: absolutely uh thank you again dr ku for coming on it's been a real pleasure
1: oh my pleasure yeah thank you so much for inviting me